The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. Kia ora and welcome to Business is Boring. Although about one in four New Zealanders live with disability, participation in business, and especially senior leadership, is vanishingly small. Jonathan Mosen is one of our few CEOs from the disability community. He's at Workbridge, an organisation that is the largest employment agency for disabled people in Aotearoa. It provides disabled people and employers with a recruitment service based on specialist knowledge of disability, reasonable accommodations and successful management of disability in the workplace. They've placed over 770 people so far this year and have, over 90 years, evolved from being a specialist agency set up to help returned servicemen disabled by World War I to becoming an advocate for all disabled, to talk their work, true inclusion and diversity, and how we can improve representation in business. Jonathan Mosen joins us now. Tenakwe, thank you for being here. Kia ora, Simon. Thanks for the opportunity. Hey, so you're pretty comfortable in the podcast format, hey, as um, the host of Mosen at Large. Oh man, it has a long genesis. I started podcasting in 2004 when the podcast thing came along. And I've been podcasting for various entities ever since. And sometimes I worked for organizations where I was hosting official corporate podcasts on their behalf. And so in 2019, I didn't really expect to be doing much in the podcast space when I became CEO of Workbridge, but I missed the engagement with the blind community about the issues of the day. And the thing about, be it internet radio or podcasting, is you can bring a community together that is not a geographic community. And I still felt like there was a place for blind people to get together and discuss the technology, the politics, everything through a blindness lens. And I called it Mosin at Large because I really don't have to answer any to anybody on that podcast anymore other than me. So it's it's just me and many thousands of blind people from around the world discussing issues of importance. Ah, that's so cool. And yeah, t- tell me about that global approach and what kind of people and what kind of topics are you covering? Well, I've worked extensively in the assistive technology sector. So a lot of the technology that I use to do my job on a daily basis, I had a hand in developing in some form or other. So when it all goes wrong, there's only one person I blame. (laughs) But So we do talk a lot of technology because technology is just so liberating to blind people. When I think about all of the progress that we've made in the last... I don't know, 25 years or so, I can read my bank statement independently and with dignity. I can read newspapers, whereas when I was a kid, I had to pester my sighted older sisters to read newspapers to me. I can shop, and I can still remember the first time I did a countdown shop. That was in 1996, and it was Woolworths then. And the thing that struck me was just how many varieties of things 
sighted people had to choose from. And I had no idea about the different choices of milk and bread and things because when you go into a supermarket with someone assisting you, you just want to get the job done. You don't want to take too much of their time. So we talk a lot of tech, but we also talk a lot about politics, blind pride, about the way that we perceive ourselves as disabled people, about disability rights issues. And it's interesting because we hear from people in countries like Australia, New Zealand, the United States, the UK, but we also hear from people in uh, developing countries who have a very different worldview on blindness. And we also do transcripts. All my podcasts are fully transcribed. We've had a grant from Internet New Zealand for the last couple of years to make that happen. And so we also get the perspectives of deafblind people who are often neglected in those discussions. Yeah, wonderful. And in terms of that work, especially around the advocacy, how did you get involved in disability advocacy? Because you've had a long career in working with really great organisations, hey? Yeah, I think I'm just a feisty person by nature, so I think it would have happened anyway. But to be honest, I recently gave evidence in public at the Royal Commission on Abuse and Care about abuse that I suffered at the hands of a teacher at the School for the Blind when I was a child. And the system really conspired to protect that teacher to the extent that they sent me off to a child psychologist to find out why I was making up stories. And had I not been believed by my parents, I think my life would have had a very different trajectory because nobody else did. Everybody else said I was fantasizing about the whole thing. And so I think from a very early age, I realized that you have to speak up for yourself and I've done that really ever since I got involved in the official blindness advocacy movement when I was 17 years old. Uh, by the time I was 27, I was national president of that organization. I was in charge of government relations for the Blind Foundation for about six years, and we got some very significant legislative change, including the thing I'm most proud of, a change to our Copyright Act back in 1994, which has now resulted, because it set a precedent, in an international treaty that has made accessible formats much more widely available. And, you know, it was a philosophical discussion we had there because what I was saying and what a number of us during that time were saying was access to information is no different from access to public buildings. And if it's a human right to have access to public buildings, it's also got to be a human right to have access to information. And it was a very different concept back then that people didn't get. So I think, you know, I, I've been fortunate enough to be able to talk and to write. And I think when you have those skills, you do, in a community like ours that is so disenfranchised and marginalised, have an obligation to make a contribution and try and give something back and make life better. And in keeping with that work, what led you to be uh, CEO at Workbridge? And yeah, let, let, tell us a little bit as well about kind of what it is that Workbridge does. I think if I look back on most of my career the one thing that drives me is what difference have I made? I mean, I worked in commercial radio for a while, a long time ago, and that was a real passion of mine, and, and radio still is. But in the end, I think, what I realized was I get the greatest satisfaction by trying to make a difference to people's lives. And I did that through the assistive technology work I did for many years for some of the most significant multinational companies in the space. But then in 2019, I was told that 
Workbridge was really going through a transition. So Workbridge is an organization that has been around in some form or other since 1931, as you said in your intro. In its current guise, it's been around since 1990. But the contractual environment has changed quite a lot in recent years, and the government now purchases very specific outcomes from Workbridge. And Workbridge lives or dies based on how many of those outcomes it achieves and how well it achieves those outcomes. That was a different way for Workbridge to work. And there was also a significant need for digital transformation at Workbridge. So a whole lot of things coalesced. And I thought I can actually make a contribution here. I'm Obviously, I'm a passionate advocate for disability rights. I lament greatly the fact that there are few people like me. I believe I'm the only chief executive of a major disability provider in New Zealand. And so I thought, okay, I'd like to come home. A lot of my work was done offshore for a long, long time. So even though I was based in New Zealand, I was really working for offshore companies. And I decided this is a good time for me to come home, re-enter the disability sector and try and make a difference and transform an organization that to me is a Taonga. Workbridge is very special. And to be given the opportunity to be the temporary custodian of this legacy is just something I'm incredibly grateful for. I have to say, though, if they'd have said that the job description included navigating the organization through a global pandemic, <laughs> maybe not so much, but we got there. Yeah, well, and, and, and you know, like um, things like pandemics only serve to push forward and put into more stark relief and add to the inequity and the difficulties for groups uh, who are marginalised in the community and kept out of the workforce and earn less. Like, and you know, when I say things like the disabled community, it's such a broad term uh, as, you know, there's so many different experiences um, captured in that. But I mean, that's a really, um, you know, you know, it's a, it's, it must have been a really hard year for the people that you're uh, organization advocates and helps? Yes and no. So it's complicated. In some respects, it was extremely difficult, and not just in a workbridge context, but for example, the government rolled out a solution that was based on QR code scanning, and everybody was expected to scan in. Now, if you're a blind person and you can't see where the QR code is, or you're a wheelchair user and the QR code has been placed in a way that makes it difficult for you to reach, to scan it, you are alienated. And as a blind person, I felt very uncomfortable having to hand my phone to someone when we're all supposed to be maintaining social distancing just to scan my code. And, and there were much better technologies that could have been used, but the right people weren't asked. I don't think it was really given much serious thought at the time. So they did create quite an accessible user interface for the COVID Tracer app. And I acknowledged on Twitter that fact, but they didn't actually think about the whole user experience, the whole paradigm and how disempowering it was for a lot of disabled people. Now, on the flip side, disabled people have been asking for more flexible accommodation arrangements when it comes to work for a long time. And so suddenly, everybody needed to work from home. Everybody was being a bit more flexible about their hours. And there are a lot of people who don't want to go back from that. And disabled people are sitting here saying, see, <laughs> we told you we told you this was a really good gig. So there has been some progress. And in terms of Workbridge as an organization, it was a very tough period because obviously if you are being paid based on outcomes and everybody's locked down, those outcomes dry up, we got some great support from the government through the Ministry of Social Development who funds us. And we're incredibly grateful 
to them. We still burn through a significant amount of reserves as part of that process, but without that help from MSD, we wouldn't be here today. Um, so the other good side of all of this too, though, is that we've obviously got a labour market shortage going on. And one of the biggest problems that disabled people face is other people's perceptions of what we can do. That is, I would say, the biggest problem I have faced in my own career, that somebody, in my case as a blind guy, somebody shuts their eyes and thinks, man, you know, how are they going to use our computer system? How are they going to even get here? Uh, are they going to trip over something? Surely there must be a health and safety hazard and on and on it goes. And so those doubts that are often not expressed actually directly so that the potential employee can refute them are probably the biggest barriers that we face. And because of this labour market shortage, what's happened now is sometimes a bit grudgingly, employers come to us and say, okay, who have you got? We, we really can't find anybody. And what's incredibly gratifying to me is that then a lot of employers are coming back and they're saying, wow, who else have you got? Yeah, wonderful. And in terms of what Workbridge does in that um, circumstance, like, yeah, let us know what it is that Workbridge uh, does. How how do you help organisations, um, you know, meaningfully bring on people who are disabled into roles? Yeah, I think there are two aspects to this. One is the supply side and one is the demand side. So we do work with people who identify as disabled. We deal with some people who definitely don't identify as disabled, and that's okay. That's where they are on their journey, but they may have some sort of illness, including long COVID, or some kind of condition that means that they may need a little extra support in the workplace. It may be harder for them to find work because of those perceptions that, I, that I'm talking about. So we work with them on CV preparation, positive disclosure, and we also connect them with a network of what I would call disability confident employers, because obviously we nurture those relationships. And I think sometimes people come to Workbridge as a bit of a last resort. They've tried themselves. And sometimes it feels almost like an admission of defeat for some people to come to Workbridge. And they feel a bit beaten. And so one of the most important things that we can provide to disabled people who feel that way is belief and hope that we believe in you, we're going to work with you to get a great outcome. And then on the, uh, in terms of convincing employers, we work with them and say to them, look, you may actually have some perception issues here. We've set up a new brand called Just Say Yes, where we can actually go into workplaces, provide training, really provide a safe space to answer some of those how will they questions that employers have. And maybe sometimes they're a bit fearful of asking them now because of the Human Rights Act. And I relate, I've been an employer myself, so I understand employers are naturally risk averse. And unfortunately, they do perceive disabled people as a risk. We've just got to get past that. And there's actually little funding out there for public education in this regard. And we'll be back in a moment with Jonathan Mosen to talk about why there's such a lack of disabled people in senior leadership. Spark is proud to partner with the Sustainable Business Network and the Climate Action Toolbox. The free Climate Action Toolbox can provide you with simple step-by-step -step guides to measure and reduce your emissions. Help lead the way to a low-carbon future for New Zealand. Visit sparklab.co.nz forward slash sustainability to find out more. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? 
Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Welcome back to Business is Boring, where we're talking with Jonathan Mosen, CEO at Workbridge. Hey, so Jonathan, you're one of the few CEOs from the disabled community uh, in, in our kind of prominent large companies. Why is this? Like, how come, especially even in the um, disabled-focused community, there are so few lived experience uh, leaders? <laughs> You don't ask these questions. We are on a journey, and we are currently launching a book about Workbridge's history, which reminds me that back in 1931, Workbridge, in those days it was called the Soldiers' Civil Reestablishment League, was founded because they felt that the government had dropped the ball on rehabilitation and, and work-ready programs for people who'd come back predominantly from World War One, to some extent from previous wars, but mainly World War One, And so we've gone on this journey where, first of all, it was acknowledged that disabled people had made a sacrifice, people who'd come back disabled as a result of participating in conflict. So they were deemed worthy of assistance. Congenitally disabled people were still not really considered that worthy of assistance and, in fact, sometimes the product of moral degeneracy, and we all know about eugenics and all that sort of thing. So... We've been taught over the years to be the grateful recipients of whatever programs government or charitable entities with very good intentions chose to give us. And now we are emerging and saying, actually, we have value, we have worth, just as other minorities and disadvantaged groups. We have the right to determine our own destiny. We want to participate in our futures. But it's really hard to break the cycle unless you're tenacious and, you know, a little bit mongrel, I guess, like <laughs> I have been uh, right now. You know, we have a very high, around about a 48% uh, of disabled people who are not in employment, education or training. So that's an appalling number. You know, the unemployment rate among disabled people is at least double and probably a bit higher than that of non-disabled people. We have a major crisis in this regard. But the problem we've got is how do you break the cycle? We don't see disabled people in the media just normalising, if you will, the fact that disabled people are a part of our community. So a few weeks ago, for example, I watched a Q&A interview between Jack Tame and the outgoing Minister for Disability Issues, who's also the Minister for Social Development. And it was a really good interview. It was one of the rare interviews where hard questions were asked about disability. But what struck me was you had two non-disabled people sitting there talking about us. And there wasn't a disabled person offered up 
on any kind of panel or to offer any kind of disability-friendly perspective. And I wrote to Q&A and I said, do you know how it feels to be a disabled person actually with a lot of knowledge in this space, sitting there in front of the tally, being talked about and, and not being represented? Would you like an actual authentic, real live disabled person to come on and talk about disability employment? And I never got a reply. So the reason why I paint this picture for you is that there is the, a whole bunch of societal complicating factors that have, I guess, collaborated to ensure that disabled people find it very, very hard to step up. And to fix that, there does need to be a cohesive program to stop it, to change it. Uh, Workbridge seeks to help, but to be honest, the outcomes contract that we have is focused on getting people off benefits and into employment. So we don't have available funding to do the kind of public good things like, say, providing scholarships to get disabled people into those key change institutions like the media and around the senior leadership table, things that I would love for us to be able to do. But the programs that we're funded to provide are extremely prescribed and they're not prescribed by disabled people. And if they do have that view of just get off benefits and into work, I imagine that um, would limit the kind of work you can do, like you were saying, about trying to uh, change the leadership and the approach to uh, making sure that there's lived experience of disability around that top table. Yes, that's right. And I, I think the other problem that we have is that there are expectations about the way that disabled people who have been fortunate enough to obtain leadership positions are expected to behave. And quite often in our sector, you will hear this expression, don't bite the hand that feeds you. And so I have incurred some criticism because of the fact that recently I have been quite outspoken about a few things that are happening in the sector and people are worried, you know, if you, if you say too much, then, well, you're going to get blacklisted and might affect funding and things like that. And I say to them, why isn't that same standard applied to people like John Tamahiri and other people in other sectors? We don't need to be passive, grateful recipients uh, of everything that we get. We are just as entitled as everybody else to shape our destiny. And I think for me, the Royal Commission process that I've been through has really brought this into focus for me. I am going to speak my truth, and it may make some people uncomfortable, but there is a lot of injustice. There's a lot of chronic underfunding. You get the situation, for example, that was highlighted on stuff not so long ago, where there's a massive discrepancy between people disabled as a result of uh, an injury through ACC and people who are congenitally uh, disabled and get different levels of funding. So there are lots of things we need to talk about. And the change that we have been successful in making, we didn't get that change by sitting idly by and tugging at forelocks. In terms of how organisations can be better, there'll be a lot of people listening to this who are in positions to hire or to influence hiring uh, in organisations. What What's a good way to actually approach looking at a role and go, how could we increase our representation? Like if you look at your company and you see that, you know, there's one in four, one in five New Zealanders live with disability. Uh, and if you don't have people in your company, maybe uh, you should be looking to do that. So what's a good process for people to, uh, to, to, to run 
And what should you be thinking of? Yes, and at the risk of shameless self-promotion, this is one of the things that Just Say Yes is seeking to do, that I do detect an increased awareness in employers that, look, we need to do better in this regard. I've had some very positive conversations with Business New Zealand, for example, on this, and they've been saying, look, there's an awareness, just tell us how. And so our Just Say Yes program is designed to help with this. I think it's important to, the first thing you could do is just check accessibility. How accessible are the premises? How accessible are the IT systems? There are ways in which you can ensure that the technology that you use is not excluding people who might need a range of assistive technologies. The other thing too is that a lot of people shy away from this because they think that it's going to be an expensive thing to accommodate a disabled person and in tough times they can't afford it. There are a lot of external funding options available. Most accommodations are pretty low cost anyway, but in the case of, say, some assistive technology that might be quite expensive, you, know, you might have to provide the laptop as you would for any staff member. But if there's an assistive technology component, the government will provide that. So I think ask the question really, make a commitment to say we can do better and contact organisations like WorkBridge to find out how we get there because there are lots of organisations eager to help. What are things to avoid? As in every... Um you know, area where people can be well-meaning, I guess people are also concerned that they may be patronising or, or or do the wrong thing as well. So what are, what are some kind of like good kind of principles for engagement? I think the biggest thing I would say is avoid making assumptions. I went to an airport uh, after a series of really unfortunate experiences where I kind of felt like I'd been manhandled and my dignity had been compromised. And I went to the airport one day and I was at the check-in counter and the check-in person said one simple thing, how can I help? And I thought, wow, <laughs> that is just so fantastic. And I think that's the best thing you can say. Uh, what can we do to allow you to participate to your maximum potential. And if you ask those questions and get good quality answers, you'll largely be there. I think the other thing is that sometimes people can be, as you say, well-intentioned, but a little bit overbearing. And sometimes disabled people can be in the workplace feeling like they're wrapped in cotton wool because they're so employers are genuinely concerned that there's a safe environment. So again, just having that discussion openly is a way to proceed. And disabled people's exclusion from business, especially kind of, you know, upper decision-making areas of business, mirrors society at large. Um, what's the change that you want to see and how how are we tracking towards it as, you know, the points that you make about there still being kind of two classes of disabled, you know, the, the ACC, oh, well, you were fine and then something bad happened to you versus congenital. Like, that's very present in a lot of our institutions still. Uh, so, yeah, how, how are we tracking? I think we need to accept that we have a crisis. Yeah, I know there's a lot of debate in the media when ministers don't use that term, but I've never heard any minister being asked whether there's a crisis in terms of the way disabled people are integrated in New Zealand society. It doesn't matter which political perspective you look at it from. If you look at it, say, from the traditional left of the spectrum, I think there's a moral obligation that every New Zealander should be able to maximise their potential. If you look at it from the traditional right of the spectrum, what purpose is possibly being served by having a whole bunch of people who are capable of contributing to our economy 
on the sidelines, on the bench, when they want to work, they want to contribute, and we're just not putting the settings in place to make it happen. Are we making progress? Absolutely. I mean, sometimes it doesn't feel like it. Advocacy is a little bit like banging your head against a brick wall. It hurts a lot, but then every so often the wall just nudges a little bit. And when I read this book about WorkBridge, it reminds me that we have really made significant progress, but that doesn't mean we can be complacent because there's still a lot to do. And what will success be for you, Jonathan, and for WorkBridge and the work that you're doing? Every disabled person who wants a job has one, and people feel like being disabled is no barrier to maximising their potential. Yeah, that's magic. Well, as a, as a final thought, like how can people get involved or learn more? Yeah, as, you know, change starts with people who are designing their own organisations. If there are... Hiring managers who are listening to this who would like to work with us would be absolutely thrilled to work with you. And so you can visit WorkBridge's website at workbridge.co.nz. I'm also very happy to talk to groups about the kind of issues that we've been talking about today to just perhaps open people's eyes to some of the issues that we're talking about because we are largely invisible. And I think that's one of the big challenges. Our issues get very little media attention. I'm very grateful for you giving us some. So we're just sort of on the sidelines, really, not being thought about a lot. So I'm always personally happy to talk to groups or individuals about some of these issues and how we make progress. Oh, very grateful for your work. Um, thank you so much for, for joining us. And yeah, looking forward to seeing um, yeah where you take the organisation and the conversation next. Thank you, Jonathan Mosen of WorkBridge. Tēnā Cheers, Simon. Tēnā So thank you to Jonathan Mosen of WorkBridge. Thank you to you for listening uh, and for everyone who helps make this happen, like our producer, Te Butler. Do follow Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to rate and leave a review, which we say every week. But go on, give it a go if you can. It helps us a lot. Inohora. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Kia ora e te iwi, te Ahe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.